It's Friday, July 15th. I'm Pam Jones. The DOJ has opened an investigation into the Maryland State Police over allegations of racial discrimination in its hiring and promotion policies. An arrest made this week in a homicide involving a motorist and a squeegee worker in Baltimore. The attorney for the 15-year-old says it was in self-defense. The widows of two Baltimore firefighters gave emotional testimony at a city council public hearing on what to do with the city's abandoned dwellings. An audit of Maryland Social Services Agency finds kids in foster care are not getting all the care they need. We'll have those stories, plus midges, what they do and why they're hurting some eastern Baltimore County businesses. It's the Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Federal prosecutors have opened an investigation into alleged racial discrimination in hiring and promotion practices within the Maryland State Police Department. WYPR's Joel McCord reports. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark of the U.S. Justice Department's Civil Rights Division said in a statement the investigation is determined whether the state police have created racially discriminatory barriers for black people seeking job opportunities and promotions and to find solutions. The investigation comes after years of complaints from black troopers about unfair hiring and discipline practices. Last month, the discovery of an offensive challenge coin depicting the female anatomy Academy, led to criticism from the Coalition of Black Maryland State Troopers and the National Association of Women Law Enforcement Executives. State Police Superintendent Woodrow Jones said in a statement today he was notified of the investigation and pledged the department's full cooperation. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. A 15-year-old squeegee worker was arrested Thursday and charged as an adult with first-degree murder in the July 7th homicide of 48-year-old Timothy Reynolds, who was seen exiting his vehicle and confronting a group of squeegee workers with a metal baseball bat. WYPR's Bethany Raja has that story. At a press conference this afternoon, Police Commissioner Michael Harrison said it was good detective work that led police to the individual. We developed enough enough evidence that warranted probable cause that the court commissioner saw fit to sign because he agreed that we have, he or she agreed that we had probable cause. With an arrest made, Mayor Brandon Scott said his administration will continue to work on answering tough questions, but he won't clear corners of black people just because they are there. We have to grow out of that and understand that we will hold people accountable for their bad actions, but we will not go back to recriminalizing just being black in Baltimore, period. Bethany Raja, WYPR News. And an update to that story this afternoon, the attorney representing the 15-year-old charged in that crime says his client was acting in self-defense and should not be charged as an adult with first-degree murder. State election officials say turnout during early voting was lower than it was in 2018. However, Nikki Charlson with the Maryland State Board of Elections says more than 500,000 people requested mail-in ballots. Those cannot be counted until two days after the election, which is this upcoming Tuesday. Baltimore County Executive Johnny Olszewski is not endorsing a candidate for the Democratic nomination in the contentious county state's attorney's race. WIPR's John Lee reports endorsing either incumbent Scott Schellenberger or his progressive opponent, Robbie Leonard, could backfire. 
Oshevsky has not shied away from making other endorsements, including for governor, state controller, and county council. When asked about who he likes in the Schellenberger-Leonard race... I look forward to working with uh, our, our state's attorney, whomever that is. The contest pits the moderate and progressive wings of the Democratic Party against each other. Community College of Baltimore County political science professor John Deedy says if Oshevsky endorsed Schellenberger... You'd anger all the progressives, especially if you're thinking of running for a higher office in four years or beyond that. But Deedy says a Leonard endorsement is risky for Oshevsky. Voters will remember that if Leonard wins and his more liberal views of how to prosecute cases aren't effective. John Lee, WIPR News. BGE is still working to restore power to roughly 1,600 customers. It's been three days since severe storms swept across the region, downing trees and power lines. Over 150,000 customers lost power in central Maryland, and as of Friday afternoon, 1,600 were still in the dark. BGE says it hopes to have power fully restored Friday night. Maryland health officials are reporting another 1,700 cases of COVID-19 in the past 24 hours. Over 550 Marylanders are currently receiving hospital treatment because of the virus. The statewide positivity rate stands at about 9.3 percent. The Baltimore City Council held a public hearing Tuesday afternoon to discuss the city's vacant housing problem. Family members of two of the firefighters killed while battling a blaze in the 200 block of Stricker Street were among several residents who gave emotional testimony during the hearing. WIPR City Hall reporter Bethany Raja with that story. After the fatal fire on January 24th, Mayor Brandon Scott called for a citywide review of everything that could be done to combat this decades-old problem. The city council found during the review that there are just under 15,000 vacant and abandoned properties in Baltimore City, and that's the lowest number in over a decade. The city owns just 1,200 of them. The vacant homes must be addressed. These vacant structures have created an increased danger to the public servants as well as the citizens they serve. They are death traps. That was Lacey Mourinho, whose sister Kelsey Sadler was one of the firefighters killed in the fire. Paul Butram and Kenny LaKyle also died that day. Mourinho, who was also a firefighter in Baltimore, said this wasn't the first time there was a fire at that location. On October 28, 2015, a fire broke out at that same home, and three firefighters were injured while extinguishing that blaze. Then, the home was deemed unlivable, but remained standing. Why did this property continue to stand for several, several years without being demolished, especially after being condemned? And this is not an isolated incident or situation. On Stricker Street alone, there are almost 44 condemned properties. In Baltimore City, there are almost 15,000 vacant properties. Though there are agencies working on this problem, Mourinho said it's not happening fast enough. She doesn't want another family to experience the pain she and the rest of the families are living through. She said this tragedy could have been prevented if these vacant homes were addressed. Paul Buttram will never have the opportunity to hold his baby girl that's on the way. Kenny Lacayo will not be able to stand at the end of the aisle to greet Clara as they were planning their wedding. Kelsey's not going to be here for all the milestones with Mila, Lily, and Emmett and to continue to live life 
within her home with her husband. Paul Butram's wife, Rachel, who at times was barely able to speak about the day her husband died, said despite the dangers of being a firefighter, he was passionate about his job and protecting the people of Baltimore. She described waiting that day for news of her husband. Every minute of those eight hours, I edged closer to the realization that this would be my husband's last day. Butram asked the council where the accountability is, not just for her husband, but for past, present, and future families affected by the city's inaction. District 14 Council Member Odette Ramos said the vacant and abandoned housing problem has been a crisis for decades. This did not just start today. This has been a crisis for decades caused by racist housing policies that Baltimore started and frankly many continue today. Ramos said the city needs to begin raising funds to get this work done. Vacant and abandoned houses have an impact on public health and public safety, she said. We know that our lack of investment and initiative to address this problem head-on has caused trauma, sent the wrong message that we as leaders do not care about certain neighborhoods, and has caused immeasurable harm to our communities. Ramos called for the demolition of half of the city's vacant houses over the next 10 years, a project that is slated to cost $3 billion. If changes are made to city policies and with financial backing, Ramos said it is doable. Bethany Raja, WYPR News. A recent audit of the state agency responsible for the foster care system and protecting children from abuse found widespread deficiencies from children in the foster care system going without medical services to abuse allegations going unchecked. WIPR reporter Rachel Bay discussed some of the findings with morning show host Nathan Sterner. Rachel, the focus of this audit is the Social Services Administration, which is part of the state's Department of Human Services and oversees all local social services agencies. And I understand this audit is a follow-up of an audit done last year? So actually, the problems go back even further. The Office of Legislative Audits, which reports to the General Assembly, looked at the Social Services Administration back in 2017 and they found 14 different problems. These ranged from inadequate monitoring of foster care providers to not making sure local social services departments were investigating allegations of child abuse in a timely fashion. When the auditors went back last year, eight of those 14 problems still existed. So this week, they released yet another audit looking at the six most significant remaining issues. Of those, the agency has still not fixed three, including the two you referenced. They are not making sure local social services agencies are following up on abuse allegations or are providing children in the foster care system with legally required services. And when you say children in the foster care system are not getting legally required services, what kinds of services are we talking about? I spoke with Josh Adler, an assistant director with the Office of Legislative Audits, and he offered this explanation. Was there a medical exam within one year? Was there a dental exam within six months? Was the child attending school during their current year? Were there efforts to place the child with relatives? 
Was there a legal basis for the child entering foster care? Those are all the things that we looked for during the audit. And many times there was no evidence that that happened. According to the audit, the Social Services Administration routinely generated reports identifying children who were missing some of these services. But the agency did not follow up with the local social services departments to make sure the issues got resolved. And to give you a sense of scale, as of the middle of March of this year, 254 children, roughly a third of the children in the foster care system, were overdue for medical exams. And a small number, 30 children, had not had a medical exam since 2019. So uh, what was the Social Services Administration's response to the audit? A spokeswoman for the agency was not able to make someone available for an interview or answer questions before my deadline. In their written response, the agency said that since October, it has been checking weekly to make sure children are going to school and that it is in the process of making sure all of their children get their annual physicals. The agency also seemed to blame poor record keeping for past issues related to both the foster care system and child abuse investigations. But that explanation didn't sit right with Adler. There are a couple of problems going on here. Number one, their record keeping is not that good. It's frequently inaccurate. Problem number two, from our experience since 2017, it has not, it has absolutely not been a record keeping issue. It is an issue of the kids not getting these services. So what are the next steps here? So the audit report was sent to the legislature's Joint Audit and Evaluation Committee, and next steps are really up to the lawmakers. I spoke with Senator Clarence Lamb, the committee's Senate chair. He said he expects the committee will want to see some kind of follow-through from the Department of Human Services. That could mean we have public hearings. Lamb also expressed a lot of frustration that some of the same problems continue to go unaddressed for years. We need to understand what the issues are. Are they just understaffed? Do they not have the right equipment? Do they have systems that can't talk to each other? What is at the core of all these problems that allow them to continue to fester on like this? The children who rely on the Social Services Administration often don't have anyone advocating for them. And Lamb said it's really up to the legislature to make sure the state agency is properly caring for them. Birds do it, bees do it, even educated midges do it. And that's causing an annoying problem in eastern Baltimore County. Midges are gnats. They don't bite, but swarms of midges are driving customers away from riverside businesses and being a nuisance for fishermen and residents. WIPR's John Lee reports the county is seeing signs it's winning some battles against the midges, but the war is far from over. Troy Cook recently was fishing at Cox's Point Park on Back River in Essex. He knows all about midge swarms. If you've ever walked through a haze of black gnats, you'd remember it. They really come in a swarm. They like swarm all over you. Like, so when you first get out here, they get on everything. Like the car, they get in the car. Becky Wall was feeding ducks nearby and shared a recent run-in of her own. I was sitting over at the picnic table and uh, just sitting there relaxing and uh, yeah, I think one flew up my nose. (laughs) 
And you know, you got to keep blowing till you get it out. For Sam Weaver, midges are more than a nuisance. He owns Weaver Marine Service on Back River in Essex, which has been a family-run business since 1945. He's been on Back River his whole life. I had a boat when I was five. Okay. If you gave a kid a boat today at five, you'd probably get locked up. <laughs> Weaver says swarms of midges getting in people's eyes and up their noses are driving away customers who have left them with a file full of comments. Great marina, great people, great everything. Can't stand the bugs. My nephew left with a million and a half dollar yacht and took it to the eastern shore. Weaver, along with Karen Wynn, who co-founded the Maryland Waterways Foundation with him, have been building the case for years that other businesses are affected too because those people who have left aren't going out to dinner or buying gas in the county. Letters from businesses. You've got um, the pictures. We've got letters from elected officials. It eventually paid off. In April, Baltimore County and the state launched an aerial attack on the midges. A helicopter has been flying over a 1,200-acre section of Back River every few weeks, spraying it with BTI, a naturally occurring bacteria. When he announced the program, County Executive Johnny Oshevsky said BTI only harms certain organisms. This will have absolutely no impact on water, human health, or fish, only midge, fly, and mosquito larvae. Scott Larzalier is the nuisance insect coordinator for the state agriculture department. He says the BTI particles find their way to the midge larvae where they quietly feed at the bottom of Back River before they make their way to the surface and become annoying. They make little, little tube homes, basically. So you're trying to get it down to them as quick as possible before it gets washed out. The big reason why Back River is loaded with midges is the troubled city-owned Back River wastewater treatment plant. The state has taken over the running of the plant and is making emergency repairs. Lars Allier says the plant has dumped nitrogen and phosphates in Back River for years. Which is basically food to grow algae, and then that uh, either live or dead is the food for the midges. County environmentalist Kevin Brittingham and Neil Eshelman check 53 sites in Back River by boat to find out whether the spraying is doing any good. They use an eight-foot claw called an Ekman dredge to scoop up six inches square of sediment from each of the sites. Brittingham dumps the mud onto a screen. He then hoses the sediment down so it's washed away. He can then count the midge larvae that remain on the screen. 20. He counted 20. A sign that the spraying might be working is that the last time they did their midge larvae census at this spot, there were around 50. Late last week, the county decided to pause the spraying program for now because there are lower levels of midge larvae. Sam Weaver says it is making a difference at his marina. He gives a bush a good shake. Dozens of midges take to the air. Weaver says not that long ago, it would have been hundreds. So is that a sign of improvement? Yes. And now it's dozens Definitely. instead of hundreds? Yes. You don't want midges to be a nuisance, but Brittingham says the goal isn't to wipe them out because, after all, they are part of the food chain. If you're out here in the springtime, the swallows are in here, the ducks are in here, the seagulls are in here, all the birds are in here just feeding, gorging themselves on midge larvae and pupae. And the fish are doing the same thing, just gorging themselves. Karen Wynn with the Maryland Waterways Foundation says another problem is that commercial fishermen have been heavily fishing bottom feeders like catfish and carp that feed on Back River's midge larvae. 
these are unregulated fish. They're considered junk fish. That is something that we're trying to work towards getting getting some regulations on them because no fish should be unregulated and no fish, you know, the species wiped out. Scott Larzalier at the State Agriculture Department says it's a matter of opinion as to whether commercial fishing in Back River is contributing to the midge explosion. But what is known for sure is that fixing the treatment plant is key to fighting midges. And the midges benefit from people living near Back River with leaky septic systems or who use nitrogen-rich fertilizers on their lawns. It's not just the treatment plant. So, we, you know, it, it is humans. <laughs> we are the problem. Lars Allier says they're getting calls throughout the area up to the Gunpowder River asking for help with midges. But Back River is getting the treatment first because it has the biggest problem. Fighting midges isn't cheap. The county plans to spend $7.5 million over five years on the spraying. The state has agreed to cover half of the cost for the first two years. Kevin Brittingham says the question is what happens after that. Is this an ongoing project? Is this a five-year project? What's it going to take to really make an effect on the midge densities in Back River? Lars Allier says the midges problem can be solved, but it will take government help to do it, and it will take time. He says cleaning up the damage done by the Back River sewage plant alone could take a generation. John Lee, WIPR News. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WIPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, Bethany Brunel-Raja, John Lee, Joel McCord, and Kristen Mossbrucker. Our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter, at That's Pam Jones. Remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.